0: Hey, Aaron. Hey, Kevin. I'm Kevin. That's Aaron. We're here talking about venture deals. Be smarter than your lawyer and venture capitalist. This will be our fourth episode. Today, we're covering chapter four, economic terms of the term sheet. Now, we're going to break this one up into two. There's so much to discuss here, and we're trying to keep these things at 20 to 30 minutes that we're going to split up chapter four into two sections.
1: Let me just start off. This chapter was a lot longer than the last chapter. Right. Yeah. So, it wasn't just one page. For
0: for someone who was preparing for this immediately before the podcast, right. that probably threw you off. Yeah. Huh?
1: Much longer chapter.
0: I do feel, Aaron, that you could probably do an entire chapter on each of these sections. Yes. Right? You know, th- th- we have so much to talk about, and I want to make sure the stuff we're talking about today is generally applicable to most. I think we could get real in depth and detail on a couple of these things and probably do entire podcasts on just. Liquidation preference, especially in light—if you want to get real technical on liquidation preference,
1: right. right? I don't know if that that would be very interesting to anyone. Well, and also we gotta we gotta make a living somehow. That's so right. We gotta keep keep some of the special keep some sauce. Some of for the secrets.
0: But really good stuff here. So let's start with the broad one. I didn't even mention this, but price, right? Right.
1: Price being a big one. So let's talk about the concept of pre-money and post-money valuation. Aaron, you want to take that one? Yeah. um, It's pretty simple. The pre-money valuation is the value of the company before you take on the investment that you're contemplating. Your post-money valuation would be your pre-money valuation plus the investment amount.
0: Pretty critical that you understand
1: this because if you
0: don't and you have a different understanding than the VC, then you could be in for a pretty big surprise when you understand what the real dilution looks like. Pre-money is going to be the value of the company that you've built up until that point in time. Then you add the VC's cash and that's your post-money valuation. Now, if a VC comes in and says they want 20% of the business, that means they want 20% of the business after their valuation so if they invest five million dollars the post money valuation will be 25 million dollars which means your pre-money was 20. I think a lot of times they say we'll be at a 25 post and founders think that you're starting at 25 that's not the case I do want to use this to make a point about convertible notes because I had a client call last week and they wanted to understand what happened to the value of the convertible notes when you were converting in. So let me give you a hypothetical, Aaron. We've got a million dollars in convertible notes. Let's just say for the sake of simplicity, principal plus interest is a million dollars. We are now doing a $3 million Series A financing and we're at a $10 million pre-money valuation. Is our post-money valuation $13 million
1: or $14 million? I, my general answer is that the post-money valuation is 13. That's right. And And because that, that, um, million dollars of convertible note has already been taken into account.
0: And and I like the way you say my general answer because VCs might have a different understanding of it. And I have seen company favorable term sheets when they come back and they will include the value of the convertible notes in the post money valuation. But generally that's not the way it goes because realize guys, when you take on investment dollars and you have $3 million in investment, the reason why your post money valuation is now 13 million is because you have $3 million cash in the bank right? You had $10 million of value before, plus probably no cash in the bank. Now you add $3 million of cash. So your value is $13 million. The first $10 million was value of intangibles, right? Software, intellectual property, contracts. Maybe you had some cash, maybe some assets, but you just added $3 million cash. So if you have a million convertible notes that you've already spent to get to that $10 million pre-money valuation, you wouldn't double dip and add that million convertible notes
1: to your post money. Well, and some people might people might come in and say, "Oh, well, no, but you know, you had a, a million dollars of liability, a million dollars of convertible debt that is no longer debt." Um, but. It's just moving it from debt to equity, and so right. you know if you're looking at at a what is it a balance? That's it's, correct. Is it's that, going to be in the same on the same side.
0: That's a that's a great point, Aaron. And people do bring that up. So I don't want to say without fail that I have never seen convertible debts get added to a post money valuation. It can happen from time to time, and fantastic if it does. But do not count on it on that happening. Okay. So you've got your pre-money, post-money valuation. Usually people talk in terms of price per share or the, the term sheet will talk about price per share, which sometimes requires a little additional work on the part of the lawyers or the principals on the term sheet to figure out what the valuation is. You simply take the price per share, multiply it times fully diluted shares and figure it out. I think it's best if the term sheet has both of those things in there, right? Let's just be clear about it. Our pre-money valuation is $10 million. We have 5 million shares outstanding, so it's $2 per share.
1: Well, and it lets all the parties sort of, you know, check each other's math and say, okay, well, let me run this through my, through my modeling. Uh, I agree.
0: Spreadsheet and be... One thing that we really want to impress on on the founders out there who are negotiating term sheets, be as specific as possible with the term sheet. Leaves much less room for interpretation or negotiation when you get to the doc drafting stage. All right, so we've got price per share. You are going to think about things in terms of price per share. Now, price per share actually gets to be very important when you get to the preferred financing round. I know, Aaron, we could probably get real detailed and maybe uh, too nuanced on this, but you want to talk a little bit about where price per share then shows up in the other documents?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, critically, it shows up in... The charter or the certificate of incorporation, um, specifically when you're you're talking about original issue price. I want to be clear
0: when we talk about charter, that is a blanket term for the organizing document of the company. In Delaware, it's called articles of uh, certificate, certificate of, incorporation. of incorporation. Thank you. In Texas, it's called certificate of formation. In Nevada, it's called articles of incorporation. I believe so. Each state calls it something a little bit different. Delaware COI, Texas COF, the ones we deal with most often. But just blanket terms. Is a charter. Go yep. ahead, Aaron.
1: Yeah. So the uh, the price per share is going to go into um, what's called the original issue price, which is then what's used if, you know, and we'll get to this in a minute, but you know, in terms of liquidation preference, that's what's going to determine, you know, if you have a 1x liquidation preference, that 1x is tied to the original issue price. The original issue price or the price per share also comes into play with respect to anti-dilution, the the conversion price, um, and you know, as you know, if the company issues shares at a price that's below the then current conversion price of that preferred stock. Um, then you adjust the conversion price to account for the um, sort of the dilution that has occurred. Very critical.
0: So the price per share, which turns into the original issue price when the lawyers get involved, is a very critical point for a number of reasons, especially for a company going through multiple sophisticated financings.
1: Hey, I'm going to throw out a softball question to you, um, which I think we both know the answer to, but help the founders understand. So the original issue price, is that going to be the par value?
0: No, absolutely not. And a lot of times people will do that. That's a good one, Aaron. So par value is the least price that you can sell your shares for. Par value is almost always listed as some nominal price, a thousandth of a cent, even a ten thousandth of a cent. We have seen companies come in here with par value of a dollar a share. And par value, realize this is the least price that you can share sell your shares for. So if you have a dollar a share and you're just getting going and you have 10 million shares issued, now you're telling people that your v- business is worth $10 million. Now in Texas, you don't have to list par value, which there might be some reason not to do that. In Delaware, you do, but we always, always recommend listing a very, very low par value.
1: I will say, in Delaware, you can have no par value stock. That's correct. They're just going to calculate your franchise taxes at a ridiculous rate. That's correct. And it ends up costing you a lot So thanks for
0: the clarification yeah. there. You can do it in Delaware. That is not a good idea because of Delaware franchise taxes. And if you did a ridiculous Delaware franchise tax bill, you can usually just... Uh, change a few things to get that down to something much more reasonable. Talk to your lawyer about that. But anyway, par value is almost always to be 0.001, 0.0001. Really in the context of venture companies, other than seeing it, you rarely use it. It just doesn't come up all the time. It's a kind of an anachronistic uh, feature of or characteristic of venture financing that, that exists. Okay. So you've got price per share, uh, price per share is used to calculate your valuation pretty easy. You take fully diluted number of shares. Let's talk about that, Aaron. And you take the, the value divi- divide, divided by fully diluted number of shares, and that'll get you your price per share. So you talk about fully diluted number of shares. I think the first parts of that are pretty easy. It's just how many shares have we issued to our founders or maybe other early stage investors. But what are the other things, Aaron, that go into fully diluted shares?
1: Well, then you start looking at um, options and not just, you know, the options granted, but also the options reserved. Have you reserved options for a pool that you haven't issued yet? Um, You know, what about outstanding warrants? What about, you know, all the different um, documents out there that might have given the right to somebody to acquire stock in your company? You could
0: have some exotic security that's convertible into equity in the company. Okay, let me ask you this, Aaron. If I'm a founder... Let's do founder versus investor. Okay, let's say I'm founder side, you're investor side. So let's assume that there's a million shares outstanding in the option pool and only five hundred thousand been issued. So you have issued options and you have options reserved for the future. As a founder, I don't want options reserved for the future to be included in fully diluted basis.
1: As an investor, what is your thought? I absolutely want that. Included Why? Because it's going to help get my get my price to where I want it to right. be. It's, gonna, it's going to it's going to basically lower the valuation
0: because if we don't include those 500,000 shares in the fully diluted basis then what's going to happen is when we start to issue those shares who's that going to dilute everybody everybody the investor and me and the founders but the founder we know that dilution is coming typically what happens is the investor says we need this percentage of employee pool available Right, for future. And if you haven't issued those, then you don't have anything available. So, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the option pool. But I want to make the point that a fully diluted basis almost always includes every single security convertible into shares, as well as anything reserved. Now, it does not generally include just what's reserved for future issuance uh, for investors. You know, a lot of times a company might authorize 25 million shares but we've only issued 10 million, including a million into an option pool that a million into the option pool, which has been designated for the option pool would be fully diluted basis. The other 15 million there, that's just being held on the side. All right. So let's see. We wanted to talk about next thing, liquidation preference. Oh, Oh, you know what? Before we get to liquidation preference, I just want to make the point on pages 43 and 44, the book goes through some different factors. What they what the book considers factors that VCs might use when considering a change or an increase in valuation. We don't have time to get into every one of these, but I think these are really, really interesting. And this is where a well-prepared founder or a good advisor or a good venture firm can be really, really helpful. Because I think there's a lot of things in this book that people can pick up on. But understanding the stage of the company, competition with other funding sources, experience of the entrepreneurs and leadership team, the VC's natural entry point, numbers, 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 and the current economic climate, those are the things that Aaron and I could help our clients or help a startup to really breathe life into as they're negotiating with a VC. So I think there's a really, really good points that everyone needs to take these in consideration. Discuss these with your counsel and your advisors to understand how it applies to you.
1: The other point that I want to make is that entrepreneur's perspective on page 45, which is don't take valuation personally. I know this company's your baby. This is what you've been working on for the last two, three, four years. But at the end of the day, this is a business nego- negotiation. The investor wants to get the lowest valuation possible. The uh, entrepreneur ov- obviously wants to get a higher valuation. Just because an investor is trying to beat you up on valuation doesn't mean they don't like your idea. Obviously, if they're having the conversation with you, they like your idea.
0: Excellent point, Aaron. The We got a lot of founders who come in here and they just were dying for $10 million valuation. And it's only at six or seven. And they get real frustrated by it. Look, you got to get money. The company's not going to grow without money. So either you take this money or you go at a lower valuation and you just build the company to a higher exit, right? Because you are going to get diluted. You're going to have own less at a 7 million pre than a 10 million pre uh, after your next investment round. So just exit for 150 million instead of 100 million. I'm not saying that that's easy, but set your sights higher or just get used to it and understand that the other alternative, which is to not take the money, is going to probably mean your company shutting down. Right. So taking a lower valuation is definitely a better option. All right, let's move on to page 45, talk about liquidation preference. Yep. So this is the other thing that we'll talk about in part one. Oh, actually, no, we'll talk about liquidation preference and pay to play, and then we'll do a part two. Liquidation preference is key. Probably the most important misunderstood term we see on the economics uh, on the economic side of a term sheet. Liquidation preference deals with when do the investors get their money back? And there's really... Two types of liquidation preference, there's participating and non-participating, also known as preferred or straight.
1: Something that I thought was interesting is that they're trying to divorce the concept of liquidation preference from participation, which I think is is more of a distinction without a difference.
0: Yes, yes, and when you talk about is this participating or is it non-participating, or if you talk about it, what's the liquidation preference, people are gonna understand that you're talking about the same thing. So uh, I agree with you there. But let's just talk about, Aaron, can you explain the difference between participating and non-participating?
1: Yeah. So uh, I think the easiest way to understand it is that non-participating is downside protection and participating is getting two bites at the apple. And what I mean when I say that is in a non-participating liquidation preference, the investor upon a liquidation event takes the greater of Whatever the liquidation preference is, so 1x their original investment, or they participate pro rata with the common. So they get whichever is greater. So it really you're only going to take the 1x if the company ends up um, having having an exit event that's less than what the valuation was when the investor invested. The on the other side, the the participating liquidation preference means that the investor gets. Their 1x or whatever their liquidation preference is. And then on top of that, participates with um, Common Pro Rata.
0: I want to take a quick sec to define what liquidation means because, Aaron, you were using this and we just assume that everyone knows what it means. If you don't, no big deal. Liquidation simply means an exit, it's when you sell your business. Liquidation is just the term that everyone uses. We don't use when you exit or when you sell your business but liquidation because you're generally liquidating your assets or a lot of times you're selling your shares if if the acquirer is not buying your assets but instead they're buying your equity but it's still treated as a liquidation or a change in control scenario so understand when we say liquidation that's what we mean let me highlight this with an example because this is a real critical point i want to make sure that everyone understands this so let's assume that you're a 10 million dollar pre-money v- valuation company and you're taking on 5 million dollars in series a financing so your post money valuation will be 15 million and we're trying to decide if you're going to be we're trying to negotiate participating versus non-participating the break point for whether we're doing a participating preferred or they are taking the pro rata ownership is always going to be the post money valuation so for example in our scenario 10 million dollars raised five million dollars post money is 15 million dollars the investors now own one-third of the company five out of 15 is one-third if you sell for 15 million dollars they can either take their 1X participating preferred back, which is $5 million, or they can take their one-third ownership, which is $5 million. So see, in that scenario, it doesn't matter. Now, if you sold for $10 million, and this is you talked about, Aaron, earlier you said this was downside protection. If you t- if you sold for $10 million, then if they took one-third, because remember, the investors owe one-third of the company. If they take one-third of the company, they only get $3.33 million back. They would rather have a 1X Participation preference. So, if you sold for ten million dollars, they would take their five million back. Then there's five million left. Now the preferred investors are gone, and you split that five million pro rata amongst the common. If you sell for hundred million dollars, they would much rather take their one third, which is thirty three and a third million dollars, instead of taking their five million. So that's the distinction, or why the break where the break point is for non-participating preferred. When you're participating preferred, as Aaron mentioned, you get both, you get your $5 million back and one third. Okay, so let's assume we sell for $15 million participating preferred. They're gonna get their 5 million back, there's 10 million left, mm-hmm. then they're gonna get 3.3 million. So they're gonna get 8.33 million and then you're going the common's gonna get the rest. If they're participating preferred and you sell for 100 million, they're gonna get their 5 million back first, because they're participating preferred versus non-participating. Again, they're going to get their five million back first. Then there's ninety-five million left. Then they'll get one third out of ninety-five million, which is I don't know a little bit over thirty million dollars. We see mostly for early stage financing. We see non-participating preferred. Once you start getting a later stage, you get participating preferred. Now you can do things on the participating preferred to make it so it's not so. Uh, not so harsh on the common, such as put in a cap, okay? The f- the, uh, the investors get their participating preferred up to a 2X or a 3X or a 4X return. We don't see a whole lot of that. To be honest, it just doesn't seem to be all that market right now, but the distinction between non-participating preferred and participating preferred is very, very important. I wanna be clear that almost all early stage stuff we see is non-participating preferred, I would say about half of the a stuff we're seeing maybe more than that is still non-participating preferred. I think I read a Fenwick study Aaron from last quarter or excuse me the uh, fourth quarter of 2016 which said participating preferred is only about 25% of A and B financings which sounds about right. Yeah, so these are mostly company friendly. You want non-participating preferred. Okay, the last thing we want to talk about before we stop the first part is pay-to-play scenarios. So pay-to-play scenarios are something that we're, we're really familiar with and we've seen it from time to time, but you know, maybe in term sheets. But honestly, Aaron, I can't remember doing a deal, not an early stage deal with pay-to-play.
1: I don't think that in my three years here, I've done a pay-to-play
0: deal. I feel like some. I'm pretty sure some of our VC clients have looked at them, have right. looked at B deals, maybe B or C deals with them in it, but I don't think we've done one. So pay-to-play means that as an investor... If you're going to keep certain rights, you have to participate in future rounds, and I think the book does a really good job of having some some sample language, right, or or demonstrating what some sample language looks like. For instance, the typical pay-to-play scenario is if the investor owns 33% of our business, which would be a huge round. Let's let's put it back to 20% because that's typical. The investor owns 20% of the business, and then there's a new financing round comes out. And the investor does not go pro rata, does not do 20%, then the investor's shares get automatically converted to common, which is a pretty big stick, right? Seems hard. It's a harsh. pretty swift stick. Yeah, yeah. I mean against the investor.
1: The, I thought this was interesting. And I think part of it is, you know, on the company side, for us, most of the investors that we're seeing in our clients are not. Typically, investors that have follow on funds reserved. And so, if you get into a scenario where you're having a pay to play as one of the economic terms of a deal, typically the only investors that are going to be agreeing to that are those that have set aside funds for follow on investments.
0: I think as VCs get more and more specialized, which they are, right? They're getting industry focused and then they're getting round focused, then you're just not going to see it. I mean, I can think of the VCs that we represent most of them are pretty round focused. And so they're not going to get into something where they're committing to a certain portion of a much larger round. Now there are definite there's there's definitely VCs where follow on strategy is a pretty critical component of their investment thesis or investment philosophy. However, we just don't see it all that often. I wouldn't be surprised if this really goes away.
1: Yeah. The other I mean, I think more commonly the pay to play scenario that I see is you have a right of first offer or, or participation, right? If you don't fully, you know, if you don't elect to fully, um, participate, then you lose your participation, right? But this whole concept of if you don't fully participate, then we're gonna, we're gonna convert your preferred to common that that's something that's relatively foreign.
0: And there are some ways that you can make that a little softer on the investor, but the book covers a couple examples. Again, if that comes up good, if you can as a company, As a company if you can demand that then that's fantastic you just don't see it all that often okay so that closes part one of chapter four economic terms of the term sheet as always check our show notes Uh, we have references to find terms related content on the website velowoodlaw.com blog click on blog then podcast then this is the office hours podcast follow us on Twitter at velowoodlaw follow us on Instagram at velowood If you have questions or comments, we want to hear from you. Podcast at Velawoodlaw.com. And finally, and most importantly, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes Look for the Office Hours podcast. Five stars only. Five stars only. Otherwise, email Aaron how we can get to five stars. Uh, Part two of this podcast coming up in a sec.
1: Vailawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at vailawoodlaw.com.